Well, it is good to be back. Um, you know, uh, Tim had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that my oldest daughter had COVID, and so we had been exposed, so we had to go into quarantine. That's fun for about one day. Okay, just go ahead and get that out there. Um, it's not that it's bad inherently, but uh, you know, you're if you're used to to being on the go and doing things, and you're trying to do your your functions here at the church, it's just a little different. It's a little more uh, difficult. Uh, but uh, but thank you for those of you that called and checked in. I appreciate that, and my family is better in that regard. It uh, it's. Um, it sure changes things. It gives you a different perspective on things when you're when you can't and you're forced to do HEB curbside and things like that. But uh, anyway, we got through that. My family's healthy, and uh, and I, but I appreciate that. But I have a question this morning for every one of you, and I have it for those of you that are teenagers, and I have those of you that are much older than me, and everybody in between. And you need to be able to answer this question. And the question, what is truth? You need to be able to answer that. But the answer to that question has been the pursuit of many for thousands of years. And so when I ask you what is truth, do you know what it is? Could you explain it? And could you tell somebody else what it is? And could you tell them how to live it out in their life? And since I was ordained in North Carolina in 2003, I have had many different answers to that question, even when the question wasn't posed. And I get many different answers, or I have gotten many different answers, from people who sit in church seats every Sunday. And this is a question that society is attempting to answer, whether they realize it or not. And they come up with a myriad of different answers. Now, as I was looking uh, at how society answers this question, I came across many things. And so I'm only going to quote one, and it was out of, uh, it was online out of, out of the publication of Psychology Today. And I'm going to quote this individual. This individual, I'm not going to name the person's name, uh, but this person is billed as a teacher, spiritual teacher, and a life coach. So That's what this person refers to themselves as, and the article referred to them as. But I want you to listen to how this person explains truth. It goes this way. (laughs) Whatever your truth is, that truth will set you free. But you have to endure the labor pains of birthing it. Whatever the truth that you need to speak. Okay, I'm sorry, what is the truth that you need to speak? How can you begin to cope with that truth? More importantly, how can you be patient through the process of birthing that truth? What is going right in your life and what could be going more right? And can you believe that people have actually paid money to sit into an audience and hear that? They have actually done that. Now, I'm not making fun of this person, okay? They're probably in the neighborhood of about 40. I'm not making fun of this person and I am not making fun of the people who follow this person and this individual's teachings because they are searching for truth. But, but the answer is very abstract that this person gave. So let's look in our culture. We go on the world scene and we look at Islam. And this is truth to Islam. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, if you know world history, and you know church history, 
you will know that every bit of that is a lie. And there are a lot of people that are following after a lie very zealously. But there's, there's another religion that people are just as much of an adherent to. It's called humanism. And humanism describes this as truth. Human experience and rational thinking provide the only source of both knowledge and moral code to live by. That's fairly abstract as well. So, looking at this pursuit of truth, my mind came across the song that was released in June of 1980 when I was a freshman in high school, and it's called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. It's not a song you sing in church, I assure you. But if you read the lyrics of that song, you will see that someone's in pursuit of something. And it sort of mirrors people's pursuit of truth. And people have been looking for truth in all the wrong places. So the question before you this morning remains, what is truth? And would you recognize it if you saw it? And would you know how to live it out in your life? And the answer to that question was given by the greatest teacher that ever walked this earth, none other than Jesus Christ. And he gives that to us in the 8th chapter of John. And so I'm going to invite those of you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. And we're only going to read two verses, but we're going to cover what surrounds it because it is so applicable. So applicable. And I would invite those of you that are able... If you would stand and honor the reading of that word. These are the words of Jesus. And as I started out, you need to be able to answer the question, what is truth? Look what Jesus says. Starting in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Now notice the context. Jesus is speaking to people who believe him, who believe in him. To those, he says, if you continue... In my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Then verse 32, and you will know the truth. And the, the Bible says the truth, but I'm going to say that truth will make you free. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I am so thankful that I have the word of God to lead me and guide me. And I will confess to you and to everybody here. I have not lived up to these two verses in my life as I should have. And Father, I ask for forgiveness in that. And Father, I have let other things get in the way of being a disciple of yours. At times, I wake up in the morning and I must confess that you are not the first thing on my mind. There are other things. And Father, as the day goes on, I may not even have thought of you. I ask for forgiveness of that. But Father, I always come back and you were always there waiting for me. And Father, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there are people here and in churches across this nation that genuinely desire to be a disciple. But they may not know what that is. They may not know truth as you're describing it here and the outcome of that, the outworking of that. So in the moments that we have together, Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would humbly not speak in error, but I would do my best with your leading to communicate that so that when we leave here, that we look upon your son, Jesus Christ, 
the author and perfecter of our faith in a new light such that we would desire to grow in Him deeper and share that with others. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to come together and worship You and the opportunity to come together and study Your Word. Father, we should not take that for granted. We thank You and we love You. It is in the precious name of Jesus we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, it would be helpful if we would at least understand the definition of the word truth. And there are a few out there, and uh, truth can be a noun or a verb, uh, but I, I picked one, and this, is a, this captures the word that uh, Jesus is describing. So this is truth. It says, that which is true, which means it's, it's accurate, or in accordance with fact... And facts can be validated or reality, that which is really real. And with a myriad of claims from the world and all the different religions and philosophies and all of this about what is truth, they cannot all be correct. And in fact, many of them are wrong. But you can't have all of these different claims. You can't have competing claims about what is truth and they all be accurate. They all be correct. Because you see, you can't have truth and, and what is untruth and you call them both truth. They can't be that way. Because the law of non-contradiction, which has never been broken, you will break yourself up against it before you break it, says that those which are polar opposites cannot be true at the same time in the same context in the same situation. So that means, ladies and gentlemen, that truth by its very nature is exclusive. It is not subjective. It is objective truth and it is not what you and I say it is because you and I are not the ones in authority. You see, the one who is in authority is the one who gets to make the claim about truth and what it is. And ladies and gentlemen, in John chapter 28, verse 18, it says that all authority resides in Jesus Christ. So he is the one who gets to claim what truth is and how it is obtained. So the one that is in authority... Jesus Christ is making a truth claim about truth. And I would submit to you that there are Christians across this land who do not know what that is. They don't know how to live out these two verses. They have taken them out of context. And how I know that is, is the myriad of people that I have talked with and in the conversations that I've had with folks, you see the affections that they give themselves over to which runs counter to what it is that Jesus is speaking about here. So the context in which Jesus says this is in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. You may remember that, that Jesus is speaking and these individuals bring this woman to him who was caught in adultery. They somehow or another caught her in the act of adultery and they bring her to him. And you may recall that, to make a long story short, Jesus says, those of you that are without sin... It is you that may cast the first stone. And guess what? Their mouths were shut. They had nothing to say. They could not argue with the wisdom that Jesus Christ presents them. And so they dropped their stones and they walked away. Because no one can legitimately argue with Jesus Christ. People tried, but it didn't work. And then the very next verse in John 8, 12 and I'm going to paraphrase this. You'll see it up on the screen. Jesus is saying, he says, I, 
I am the one within me. I am the light of the world. And whoever it is that follows me, follows after me, whoever it is that is in me is not walking in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light, you are not the source of the light. You are but a conduit. So the light of Christ will shine through you and go out into this world. And it is hopeful that it would be a little bit more than just a dim flicker, but it would be bright so that you would be that one that the light would go through, that conduit. And by John 8, 12, Jesus is saying, says, Hey, folks, the world is dark. It is dark with sin. It is dark with evil. And it is the light that exposes that darkness. It exposes the evil being interpreted that if you are not in him, if you choose not to be in him, you are in darkness. And you go back to John 1 and it says that the darkness does not comprehend nor overcome nor subdue, whichever word you want to use, it does not overcome the light because the light exposes the dark. And then we get a little bit further in John chapter 8 and we come to verse 24. And Jesus is telling those that were listening to him, he says, if you continue, I'm paraphrasing this, if you continue to live in the darkness, if you continue to live in your sins, if you refuse to believe upon me the validity of all that it is that I am, you will die in your sins. And so he's saying that if you choose to reject me and you choose to remain in darkness, when you say no to me for the very last time, when you say no at the absolute last opportunity that you will get what you're asking for and you will go into an existence without me and that is not what you need. And every claim, every statement, everything that Jesus Christ ever presented, his claim of authority, it was all there backed up by his characteristic, his presence, and it is the Old Testament that meticulously pointed to his arrival. All the characteristics of the Messiah were there on display. It all pointed to his fulfillment in him. So there, there is no way then in there that anybody could make a valid claim against Jesus Christ. The evidence was stacked against you. Now from all of that, we come to John 8.30. And it's telling us, it says, as he spoke these things and all the other things you could add to that that he had spoken all the stuff that he had ever done that, that was validated and substantiated is being real and authentic. It says he spoke these things and many came to believe in him. Now, did everybody who saw and heard Jesus come to believe in him? No. Scribes and the Pharisees are a good bunch of that. Sadducees, they, they simply did not like him. And there were other people that, were, that had positions of power that they simply did not come to faith in him. And just like today, there will people that will have pride of heart and they will not, get this, submit to anything outside of themselves. They submit to the will of the flesh, but they will not submit to Jesus Christ. Just like then is the same thing today. And so... Some did come out of that. Some did leave that. Some did accept Jesus Christ. And these are the people that Jesus is speaking to. He's saying these folks whose lives are changed, these folks whose lives are transformed, these are the ones I'm speaking to. So let me pause here for just a moment. I want to make this clear. Simple mental assent 
to the fact that Jesus Christ walked this earth will not save you. It didn't then, it won't today, and it won't tomorrow. And if you say, simply say, I believe in the existence of God, that will not save you. And in fact, that will not help you. Because it's one thing to say that I believe that God exists. It is an entirely different thing that I believe and have confidence on what he said. It's altogether different. So simply saying that I simply believe in the existence of God, but it doesn't bring anything into my life because I believe in his existence, ladies and gentlemen, that's not who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to those people who have believed in him and have believed up on him whose lives are changed. And you know how I know that that's true? Because the demons, it tells us in James chapter 2, believe and they tremble at what it is that they believe in, but they're not saved. So mere acceptance of his existence doesn't cut it. And so they didn't have simply have faith in his existence, but they had confidence. They had, they had knowledge that they trusted him, that he was validated. Everything that he did was substantiated by his character and what was foretold. And so this is the person that Jesus is speaking to here. And from that, from such a person... He then goes and explains what that life is to look like, what it is to take on, and how others are to see it. And then we come to John 8, 31. He said, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now notice what he says. He says, if you continue. Good way to say it like this. You started with my word. You have believed my word, and now the characteristic of your life is that you will continue in my word. It was true then, and it's true today. So if you were accused of being a disciple, if you were accused of being a follower of Jesus Christ, the evidence that substantiates that accusation is that your faith would result in that you would continue in His Word. Are you going to do it perfectly? No. Are you going to trip and fall and sometimes make a fool of yourself? Yes. I've done it more than all of y'all put together, okay? So you're going to mess up. But the evidence of that accusation is that you continue in His Word. And the Word of God would be the guide and, and at least the overarching ethic in your life. Now, a disciple does not turn from the Word of God. I have slipped and I have fallen and there's days I woke up and, and I, wasn't, I wasn't really interested in the things of God. And when I first heard a, a military chaplain who, who baptized me tell me those things, I was very disturbed. And I looked at him and I said, man, you're, you're supposed to be perfect. And he looked at me and said, get a life. No, he didn't say that. But anyway, but, but I didn't understand it and it bothered me. But then I got a dose of reality. There are days that I wake up and... and and it's, I just want to go back to sleep. And so I don't always wake up every day saying, wow, I get to be a disciple of Jesus Christ because I'm human. I struggle in the flesh. But a disciple does not constantly turn away day after day, month after month, after year after year. You, that's not the, the direction of your life. You'll have bad days, but you are constantly in him. He's on your mind, and that faith that you have results in a permanence that you are still in the relationship. You haven't stepped out of the relationship and you're not saved because you abide in the word or you continue in the word, 
But when you are saved, you're going to want to do that. You're going to want this in your life. You're going to want that to be in there. Because the doing, continuing, comes out of the being in the relationship. So it's not what you do that gets you saved. It's who you are. And out of who you are, you accept Christ. That is what you do. And so we live that out so that others can see it. You know, I would rather be a disciple that is going through a rough time any day than simply be a face in the crowd that's not doing anything for the Lord. I'd rather be found worthy that I'm going to have to endure some hardship than simply have the easy way out and be just another face in the crowd. Let me explain that a little bit further. Let's take the word disciple. That word is really not understood today like it was then. I mean, it still has the same meaning, but that's not really a word that we use. We may use words such as student or follower or uh, learner, and all of these sort of grab a hold of it. But they don't really capture what we're looking for in the word disciple. And, and today, we might use the word apprentice. An apprentice is one who watches the master and attempts to guide every aspect of their life by what they see the master doing. I'm watching, I'm moving, I'm adjusting. I'm praying, I'm releasing, I'm waiting, and I'm watching the master, and I take on the master's characteristic and ethic for my life because I am an apprentice. And where the master goes and what the master does, as much as I can in sinful human flesh, I attempt to mimic that and do that in my life and incorporate that into my DNA. And so I want as much as I can to walk in the footsteps of the master, and that is the person that Jesus is talking about. So one could refer, use the term, maybe a committed Christian. That, that word's not in the Bible. But you could say that, that I am practicing committed Christianity. But what do we see a lot of today? Nominal Christianity. We have people in churches that, in this world that are saved. Now, I'm not a reconciler of God. The, the late Vince Havner uh, said, I'm, I'm not a reconciler of God. And so they may have made a decision for Jesus Christ. But what they do is they keep the relationship at arm's length and lukewarm at best. That is not what Jesus Christ is talking about. That is nominal Christianity. And so they don't desire His Lordship moving in their lives. They don't want that. But that's not what Christ wants for us. He doesn't want that. He knows you're going to have days like that. But that's not the, the continuation of your life. He doesn't want you living with one foot on somewhat semi-solid ground and the other foot on the shifting sands of the world where you're straddling the fence and you don't even know where you land on things until the the situation comes up to you, and then you may have situational ethics and all of those things because, ladies and gentlemen, when you're living like that, habitually, that is a contradiction to who you are. You were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. You're a blood-washed believer. And so we are to stand on that solid ground, on the rock that, that he talks about, not on the sand, not in, encapsulated in the things of the world. You see, because that is a contradiction, and that is no way to live. And ladies and gentlemen... I'm going to talk to the men right now. I know there might be some ladies that, that deal with this, but I'm just going to pick on the men for right now. Men, we value 
good, hard, honest work. But if that's all that people around you hear about, you need to realize, you know what you're communicating? Humanism. You're elevating what you do so that others will like that. Ladies and gentlemen, that is humanism. Why don't you go around and tell them people, says, you know, I'm very thankful that the Lord has given me the health to do something that I like to do. And while I'm working hard and I do my best to be honest, I'm trying to tell others about Jesus Christ, about how I handle situations, because I want to I lead some people to Jesus Christ. That's altogether different. And so, ladies and gentlemen, don't elevate what you're doing and what you're about, okay? Why don't, you, why don't you tell others what the Lord is doing through you, the light that is going through you and showing to other folks? That is what we need to be elevating because unknowingly, without intention, we're elevating an ism that Jesus is not talking about here. So what is the outcome for a disciple? What is the outcome for someone who is an apprentice of Jesus Christ? What is the outworking of that? Well, he tells us in verse 32. He says, this is the committed follower. He says, you will know the truth. The world's truth? No. The philosopher's truth? No. You will know the truth. And I know the book says the. I'm going to say that truth will make you free. You know, people often quote this, and I've been guilty of quoting it. They will often quote it, and they'll apply it to a situation as if it has some universal application for however it is that you want to use it. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I've heard it said, says, well, you know, the truth will set you free. Well, that's, that's not entirely accurate. The truth may not set you free. The truth may expose you. And the truth may land you in prison. And you're not free there. So we, we can't just arbitrarily assign that meaning to that verse when that's not what Jesus meant. And remember the spiritual advisor and this family coach that I talked about earlier that, that I, I read in psychology today, that person's definition of truth was whatever your definition of truth was. And so this person would coach you based on the truth that you come up with. And so now there's going to be another person that's going to come along, and this coach will coach you in that truth. And so we have competing truth claims. Well, ladies and gentlemen, they can't all be correct. We can't have 25 different aspects of truth, especially when we all come to the traffic light. You would have a, a major problem there. We all have to work together in the traffic system. There is an absolute truth. When it's red, you stop. When it's green, you go. And when it's yellow, you punch it. No, I'm just kidding, okay? But, but we all have to have that truth, okay? And so we see that there is an absolute truth. Well, what the world is, is that we don't want to take a definitive stance on truth because, well, that's not really nice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about the truth. And he's speaking the truth for the followers of his and that it is those people and those people only. Let me repeat that. It is those people and those people only who will know the truth. And it is that truth for those people and they're set free. And set free from what? Well, then in there, it was, the, it was the burden of the Old Testament law. They had to follow all the requirements. And every time they sinned, they had to sacrifice an animal. And they had to, had to go through all of these things 
which if you study the Old Testament when the law was given, it is actually, it's, it's very grace-filled, even though it is burdensome, okay? And, and so now these people are freed from, from that. They didn't have to lend an ear to the religious leaders that would just heap on them a, a myriad of demands that God never wanted heaped up on them. And so what these people are learning, these followers of Jesus Christ now, is that obedience never led to freedom. But freedom leads to a desire to want to please and live for God. And so there's this inner desire that a disciple, an apprentice would have that will work itself out so that I would continue in the Word and I would live this truth that that he is talking about and that others would see it in my life. And and this truth can only be understood by his followers because that's who he's referring to. Why is all this important? Why are you you hitting on this, Alan? You've beat this so much. I'm going to tell you why. Now more than ever, in, in, in history of this world, we have an overabundance of information that is at our access. I mean, it is everywhere. And, and a large portion of that is false, it's inaccurate, and much of it is downright evil. And people are... I'm not bashing the internet. There are very good things about it, okay? And not that at all. Okay, but there people are increasing in their appetite for information void of wisdom. And they're digesting more and more and more of this. And when they get a little bit, they want a little bit more. You know how that is when you satisfy the flesh? I want a little bit, and I'm going to get a little bit more, and I want a little bit more. I want to keep getting all of this. So I'm, I'm ingesting all of this. So what is it that we are ingesting by all of this information that's at our fingertips? Well... This is what is on the rise. It's a disregard for right and wrong. Because remember the coach that I talked about? You get to come up with your own truth. And so you get to decide for you what is right and wrong, and nobody else can decide that for you. How about a decreasing moral barometer? The morality in this world is is going through the floor. How about a lack of genuine respect for people, each other? How about decency? And then we see an elevation of self unlike ever before. You cannot tell me what to do. You're your own authority. And I'm not pointing at you. I'm saying society. People view themselves as the authority figures in their life. And if I don't like what is going on, I get to rewrite history. I get to be a part of rewriting history. Oh, and there's anything that claims to be an absolute truth and an absolute source of morality, well, I absolutely reject that and throw that in the trash. That is what is going on in our world, and it's inundating people in the church. And here's the big one, folks. That marriage is not between one man and one woman. That is the biggest lie that is out there. And I'm not being mean and I'm not being considerate. And if there is a person that has a struggle in that area, I don't dislike you. I love you. I appreciate you. And I am so glad that you're coming here so that we can walk through this together. I'm not picking on you. But ladies and gentlemen, right is right and wrong is wrong. And we don't get to choose that because God settles it whether we like it or not. But this issue that marriage can be whatever you define. Remember, you get to define your truth. That is where that's coming from because you get to define your truth and what makes you happy. 
And so you can do whatever it is that you want. And ladies and gentlemen, that cultural mindset is seeping into the minds and the hearts of ever-increasing numbers of people that sit in church seats every Sunday. And I can remember, I was in my, my, I was about 35. I saved when I was 29, I was 35, and I was in a Sunday school class. And I remember a Sunday school teacher saying this. This person was, was probably my age now, I'm 54. And uh, I heard the teacher say that there's persecution against the church and Christians are being persecuted and all that. And I thought to myself, you have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not being persecuted, nobody's persecuting me. But what I didn't realize is that they, the individuals in that age bracket that were teaching Sunday school and elsewhere, what I didn't realize is that they were seeing earlier stages of what we're seeing today. They knew what they were talking about, but I didn't see it. And the reason I would say that I didn't see it is that I hadn't been a disciple very long, and I wasn't able yet to discern all of the truth that, that, that I've come to know now. So I had to learn and I had to grow. And so I am now seeing what they are talking about, except at a much more elevated state. So this teacher was spot on. I just didn't see it at the time. So what is it that the teacher is talking about then that we're seeing more of today? Well, it's hostility toward the churches on the rise. Because let, let, me, let me give you an example. When Jesus came into Jerusalem... Okay, Did he send a delegation ahead to the scribes and the Pharisees and say, hey, I, let's get together and let's, let's hold a conference and let's try to figure out the, the, what's the same between Judaism and Christianity and let's just figure out how we can all get along and we really won't uh, speak truth to anybody. No, he didn't do that. He said, this is the truth, this alone is the truth, take it or leave it. And so you can have all these myriad of groups out there, but the moment that you stand up and say that Jesus Christ is the absolute only way to get to God the Father and apart from Jesus Christ, you're going to go into an eternity without Him you're on the receiving end of hostility because that doesn't fit the truth narrative of society. And so there is a hostility that's on the rise toward the church. Let's take Sunday and Wednesday. They are no longer off limits for activities. Now, I'm not knocking people who go to the beach on Sunday, who travel, and I'm not knocking that at all, okay? And let's say that you're in a, in a sports league and it got rained all week and you've got to play on Sunday, okay? Well, I would tell you that, that your team, now you can persecute me if you want, I would say your team is counting on you and God's not going to feel slighted if you miss one Sunday because you're doing for your team. Let's not get legalistic on that. But what I'm saying is, is that the culture no longer views those days as set aside for people who want to go and worship. And it doesn't matter if it's in the sports league or the school. And if you ever go and try to talk to anybody about that, they're going to say Sunday and Wednesday? Gosh, everybody's on board with that. Get over yourself. Get over it is how they're going to push back if you try to bring it up. And guess what? These little attacks, little as they are, increase bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the world is taking ever so smaller but bigger bites against the truth claims of Christ and against what it is that we stand for. 
And can I tell you something? It is not going to get any better. Tomorrow is not going to be any better than today. And Tuesday will not be any better than Monday. And I don't mean to bust anybody's bubble, but the election is going to fix nothing. It's not going to fix a thing. And you know why? I'm not about to elevate one group of sinners over another group of sinners and break fellowship with you if you're not in the same political camp as me. That is absolute nonsense. And God looks down at his people and says, why are you getting worked up over two different groups of sinners and you're not in my word? So ladies and gentlemen, you know how I know the election isn't going to fix anything? Because remember back in Genesis, God got a gut full of sin? He says, okay, I'm going to wash it all away. Noah, you and your family get on a big old boat. And so they built the boat, and they was on that boat for a while. The water goes away, sin and evil is purged away. Now, there's eight sinners on that boat. And we get to Genesis chapter 8. And uh, Noah, I, I might have said Moses, I'm sorry. Noah was on the boat and he got off. And as soon as he gets off and the animals are off and all that, he, he begins to worship God. And God receives that worship and says it's a pleasing aroma. He, he, he accepts Noah's worship. And then we get to Genesis 8.21. And notice what he says. It'll be on the screen. He says, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sin's already been purged. It's gone. And there's one man worshiping God that God is receiving. And he says that the sin is in the heart of man. And in the very next chapter, probably before he even built a house, he grew some grapes. And he let them ferment. And he got drunk. And he passed out. And he didn't have the pressures of city hall or neighbors that were a pain in the behind. And he didn't have the IRS beating on your door or or a bunch of church folks just browbeating you. He didn't have any of those problems. It was a clean world. And he's already getting drunk. And so what God is saying here is that even out of when sin was purged, God is saying that you can't blame the sin of the world on the environment. The problem in the world is the heart of mankind. It, that's where the problem is. And, and I'm just as guilty as the next person. And with all the accusations flying around, we're attacking this person and that. And, and, and really, it doesn't matter what news media you watch. And I've seen many of them... It's interesting how they will all skew certain facts. And sometimes instead of reporting the news, they attack the other news media for the news they didn't report. Ladies and gentlemen, it used to never be that way. When I grew up and I was in high school, you didn't see all that stuff, okay? And And then you've got people fighting in the digital realm, seeing who can just chew each other up and have the last word on, on, on silencing somebody. And then we have character assassinations. Do you know that our political process requires that the, the person really who gets elected was a better character assassin than the other? That's our political system, folks. And you know what that is? You know what God calls that? God calls that evil. And so God, yes, we should vote, and yes, we should be involved. But ladies and gentlemen, all of those things are so below the Word of God. And God calls His disciples, He calls His apprentices to be students of His Word and live that out. And so, now more than ever, we need that. You know why? Because when you look at all this that's going on, there is evil all around us. And you know who's pulling the puppet strings? It is Satan. 
And he's pulling them, and he's grabbing more and more people. So what we need now more than ever is those who are disciples, those who are apprentices, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, that we would be and live out who it is that we are, that we would continue in the Word, that we would know that truth. That truth would set us free from all the things in the world that, that don't lead us to Christ, and we would be about that so that people could see our testimony more or long before they ever hear it. If someone sees your testimony before they hear it, they don't need to hear it. But if they don't see your testimony and you have to tell them, that's not the way it needs to be. They need to see your character before you ever tell them what Christ has rescued you from. And we are to live that out. And if we don't live that out, you know what's going to happen? We're going to be prone to being captured by the voice, the competing voices that are in the world, and we are going to be prone to listening to the world's philosophy because we're not making ourselves committed to the word and we're not digesting the truth. And you know what's going to happen? That out there is going to sound more and more valid. It's going to sound more and more correct because we don't recognize it for what it is. And so we may be succumbing to the religion of humanism, but ladies and gentlemen, Christ has set us free from performance anxiety. You play for an audience of one. Him. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. I mean, there is some importance in some of that. But you realize He is number one and you play for an audience of one because you have been set free and you've been set free from a lie. And when you know this truth, you have the ability to tune that out and because you've been accepted and you're desired... There's a relationship with Him. You know the truth. You dial into Him because you're approved. And then we can see the world for what it is. Now, you remember how Tim has preached through Romans 12. He starts out in Romans 12, 1, that we are to be a living sacrifice, not dead. A dead sacrifice can't do anything. But a living sacrifice, I sacrifice myself, and I get up and serve Him. And then there's a, a part in Romans 12, you know where it says, don't return evil for evil? That, none of that makes sense. If you're not committed to his word and you're not a disciple of his, that's going to sound foreign. It's not going to sound fun. You're not going to have the power not to return evil for evil. What you're going to want to do is you're going to want to fix it. You're, you're, going to, you're going to want to rough up a nubhead because they treated you wrong. And that is not in the character of God. We shouldn't do that. So when I'm a, an apprentice... I know that truth and I can live it out. And then where I believe Tim is going in Romans 13, we can begin to understand how this works itself out in our lives. So I want to say, the last thing that's going to be on the overhead is that only as an apprentice can you live fully. Only as an apprentice can you live fully. Because if you're not living like that, or if this is not important to you, this needs to be something that is important in your life. You might have said, Alan, I, I, I kind of got off the beaten path. I'm going to tell you something. I talked with a gentleman in the first service. Brought up that he got off the path. And I, I'm going to extend to you the same thing I extended to the first service. And he took us up on it. He said, I'm ready to be an apprentice. So we talked with him. It's in a Bible study class right now. And he is on his first step, learning how to be an apprentice 
for Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, are you continuing in the word? Are you studying his word? Are you studying the word with other people? Are you in a study on Sunday morning? Are you involved in anything where you can discuss the word of God with other people outside of this? Are you in a care group? The care group that I'm in, I absolutely love them. We have yet to break the Bible open, but we pray and we encourage one another and we support one another and we discuss all the things that are going on in our life and how the Lord is moving in our lives and how He is keeping us and He is protecting us and we speak about the relationship we have with the Lord so we can encourage one another. So when there's a crisis in our life, we immediately come to each other's aid and we walk with them, ladies and gentlemen. So we live out that truth, the truth of Christ, because we've been set free. And perhaps you haven't accepted Christ. Before I was saved, I was 29, I'd opened the Bible. It made absolutely no sense. No sense whatsoever. But I realized that it was more than me. And then after I was saved, I hadn't gone to a class, hadn't listened to anybody online. It was incredible how when I would read through the Gospels, how much sense it made. I asked God, how can you make so much sense? The one difference, the Holy Spirit was illuminating this for me. And I was such a rookie. But I could understand it. Where before I couldn't. So if all of this doesn't make sense, perhaps you haven't surrendered to the Lord. And if that is the case, please don't leave here without doing that. Make the most important decision you'll ever make. The decision for Christ. And then let us come around you and walk with you and help you be that apprentice that the Lord wants you to be. If there's anything that you need to pray about or leave at this altar, the invitation is for you. Would you please stand? Father, in the precious name of Jesus. I am so thankful that you have never given up on me. If there is anybody that you would have ever given up on, it would have been me. But you didn't. And I am so thankful. And Father, I am thankful that I have had the opportunity to walk with other men. And that other men have walked with me. And Father, I pray that for others in this congregation. Father, if there's somebody that has a desire to be that apprentice, but things have gotten in the way. Father, I pray that you... You tug at their heart and they would talk with somebody and they would walk with them. They would point them in that direction. Somebody hasn't accepted you and they realize that they're without you. Father, stir their heart that they would call out to you. They would cry out to you. And they would come to you with the empty hands of faith. And you'd take them. You would adopt them. And you would keep them. Father, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray.